Hello, everyone, and welcome to this ESAP online conversation. My name is Frederick Eriksson. I'm very pleased to welcome today Elizabeth Brawl, a security expert who is also in the world of think tanks, now as senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C. I first met Elizabeth about 25 years ago when we were both young and pretty new in the world of journalism and policy analysis. And since then, Elizabeth has had a great career in both fields. She has worked for major newspapers and magazines and with some of the big security policy think tanks in the world, including positions at the Atlantic Council and the Royal United Services Institute for Defense and Security Studies, RUSI. Elizabeth is also Commissioner on the UK National Preparedness Commission and on the Advisory Board of the Centre for Information Resilience in the same country. And she is also out with a new book called The Defender's Dilemma, Identifying and Deterring Grey Zone Aggression. And this is also the subject of today's conversation. Hello, Elizabeth. I'm very glad to have you with me today. Thank you for having me and thank you for inviting me. And uh, hello to everybody who is uh, joining the call and look forward to discussing these issues uh, with everybody later. Yes, indeed. So may I just start asking out of own curiosity, so what is the National Preparedness Commission? It's a commission that was set up by Lord Toby Harris, a member of the House of Lords, and a long-time expert and proponent of, of uh, greater resilience in the UK. And he assembled, essentially when the UK National well, the integrated review, the, which is a national security strategy. Leading up to that, he assembled what he considered to be the, the leading experts on national resilience uh, in this commission. And it's, um, it's people from CEOs and, and other executives from uh, infrastructure companies, so for transportation and so forth, uh, the uh, people in, in politics, especially in the House of Lords, and some outsiders from academia, including me. And uh, the, the idea is to generate the best ideas and, and feed them easily into politically implementable solutions that can speed along the UK's path towards, towards better societal resilience. All right, very good. Sounds very close to the subject that you also written your new book on. And, and first of all, let me say congratulations to uh, releasing the new book. And I should also say that this is not your first book. You've also written a previous book, which I could recommend, called God's Spies, about perhaps what we can call information warfare in a different era during the Cold War, or at least what different spy networks were doing um, back then. Yeah, and, and but, people think it's it's a, you know it's a wide leap from doing a, a general market book about the Stasi, which is what what God's Spies was about. Uh, and now doing a, a more policy-focused book about new national security threats. but uh, and, and it is a wide leap. It's, these are two completely different kinds of books. But the common denominator is that they focus on the vulnerability of society. So in God's Spies, the reason that the Stasi wasn't successful, that the part of the Stasi that I wrote about is that uh, this particular department of the Stasi had completely figured out how to get people to work with you, what their weaknesses are. And so as a result, they didn't need to use any force. And what, we are, what are we seeing today? Our adverse, uh, adversaries, so I'm saying our, the West's adversaries, have figured out what our weaknesses are as, as liberal democracies, and, and they exploit them. Hmm. Indeed, indeed. No, it's, it's nice to see that connection between the two books you have as well. So let's talk a little bit about gray zone aggression and try to figure out what it is and how common it is. So I think in the past decades, many of us have learned a new vocabulary to describe developments in security policy. So information warfare has become more common, that we know. This has featured a lot in the past year with the rollout of the vaccines and competition between different vaccines. We've seen that here in Europe. Before that, one of the big issues was, of course, Russian involvement in the U.S. election. We hear references to the concept of hybrid war um, and references to real situations of hybrid war, too, of course, like in Ukraine and what we've seen there over the past years. And we can read in the press about cyber attacks. And indeed, this year, some of us actually felt the consequence of them. My local grocery in the place where we have our summer house was one of the casualties when a payment technology provider got attacked and had to close its payment services for several days, meaning that many of us couldn't buy food. In your book, you work with a term that may be pretty new to people, gray zone aggression. So can we perhaps start there? What, what is gray zone aggression? It's aggression conducted by 
were sponsored by uh, or condoned by hostile states in the gray zone between war and peace. So it's uh, as the targeted country, it's, uh, you can see that something is happening, but it's not, it's not war. And yet it's, uh, it has incredible effects on uh, the country's daily life. You mentioned, for example, the, the, your local supermarket. That, that is a fantastic example of a gray zone aggression. It's not an act of war, but nevertheless, it brings society to a halt. In this case, uh, Swedish grocery stores. It can also be disinformation campaigns. It can be subversive uh, business practices where all of a sudden uh, the, the best and the most promising companies in any given country are, are no longer owned by entities in, the, in that country or by entities in, in related countries. They are owned by by companies in, 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 in countries that wish us ill. It can be, for example, what we're seeing as we speak, uh, weaponization of migrants, which is what, uh, what Belarus is specializing in, causing enormous damage, not just to the, the, the countries where these migrants enter from Belarus, but to the entire European Union. And yet, because it's not, it, 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 this aggression doesn't involve soldiers with weapons, we have no idea what to do about it. So how common is it? To what extent are we talking about a problem that we know or that we know that it is widespread or not? Or the problem wears up to, or is the problem that we simply don't know how widespread it is? I mean, I, I, I would expect that some of these things are, you know, pretty obvious because we can we can see disinformation or we can listen to disinformation. When you go into cyber espionage, for instance, it's, it's far more difficult to understand sort of the, the full context and the full scale of different activities that go on. So what, what do we know about the scale of these type of aggressions? Yeah, so the challenge uh, with brazen aggression is that it's, in a sense, uh, when it's a, a, of a low-intensity kind, you can, you can say, well, it's just part of the hustle and bustle of the globalized economy, and it's just uh, life in, in the modern world where uh, you have to take some sort of disruption into account or some uh, nastiness, ugliness into to account. It's just the way uh, countries operate uh, or the, the, that's what you have to accept if you want to be part of a globalized world. So I think of geopolitical, uh, as of gray zone aggression as geopolitical gaslighting because it's happening on a daily basis, but it's so easy to tell yourself, well, maybe it's not real, maybe it's in my head and not just uh, people telling themselves that that's the case, but the other side can tell you that that's the case. And Russia and China are obviously trying to make us believe that that what they are doing is is nothing at all, and and in fact that that we should be their friends. And so that uh, Greystone aggression really is geopolitical gaslighting because it's not obvious when it's taking place until it's too late to do anything about it. And it's as a result, it's it's easy to dismiss or to doubt your own perceptions of what's happening. So, for example, if we look at at cyber aggression, we can say, well, it's it's just a price we have to pay for being part of this globalized world. Or we can say it seems to be terribly common in association with hostile states that or countries that, that wish us ill, regimes that wish us ill. Um, or we can say with regards to uh, subversive business practices, so for example, acquisitions in the areas that are part of Made in China 2025, all of a sudden, acquisitions in those areas, including of, of startups, are very common. And I think five, ten years ago, even two years ago, we would have said, well, mergers and acquisitions, that's part of, of the globalized economy, right? Why, why, should we, why should we treat that as, as a national security threat? But then when we look at the sort of companies that are being bought up and are no longer, let's say, German, uh, Italian, Swedish companies, but are associated with the country that has bought them, meaning China, then that becomes a national security challenge because China wants to uh, leapfrog us and become the world's leading manufacturing, uh, wants to become the world's manufacturing superpower. How do you do that? You essentially exploit or take advantage of other countries' countries' expertise, their companies, and make them yours. And as a result, we have seen with a number of companies, for example, semiconductor companies in Sweden, uh, an Italian drone company, a German, a German industrial robot company, they are now Chinese companies, and there is nothing we can do. Uh, so how do you know that it's happening? Well, the problem is it's, it's, it's hard to tell until it's too late. And uh, by the way, I should say this is not just uh, in these areas. It's, for example, also with with border alterations. So China has been conducting 
subtle border alterations, for example, gradually building islands in the South China Sea or moving the border a little bit with it, uh, with Bhutan. And that's, yeah, you can say, what's a few meters? What, what difference does that make? Well, a few meters each time. And then uh, it is, uh, it does make a difference. And it's, it's an uh, infringement on that country's sovereignty. But what do you do if it's just a little bit? You say, well, maybe it's not worth responding. It's not worth risking conflict. And that is the challenge. One of the reasons for why I was asking the question is also, I think, like many other people, I'm trying to figure out exactly what what is the context for different relations that we're having with foreign governments today. So, I mean, you sometimes can hear references that the relationship between America and China, perhaps even Europe and China, is moving into something, something which would be akin to a Cold War. I'm not sure about that reference myself given that there is a vast difference in economic integration and sort of the scale and depth of the economic ties, perhaps also other ties between the West and China. I'm sometimes thinking perhaps more about George Orwell said of the 1945 settlement that it was a peace that is no peace. And that perhaps seems to be a more apt metaphor, but it's also a metaphor, at least a realization that seemingly should have pretty strong consequences if we are acknowledging the fact that we don't have a peaceful relation any longer with lots of different countries. There are others talking about or saying explicitly that we are already in a warlike situation with countries like China and Russia. It's just that it's a different type of war and it's it's not fought with uh, tanks or with rifles or with traditional military armory. It's, it's, it's a different type of war. So how, how would you sort of weigh these things up and, and position sort of these issues in, in, in a broader context to help us understand sort of how, how serious is this? Yeah, so I think that the first thing I would say is that I think it's dangerous to use the word war because then uh, people will, will say, well, I don't see a war. What are you talking about? It's, it's, you know, it's, it's the, the usual uh, suspects in the international security community who are sort of imagining or seeing ghosts again. Uh, but it's it's uh, it's not a war. It's it's a geo- geopolitical confrontation involving means involving aggression against civil society. And so, lots of people are saying, "Well, it's uh, we are in a Cold War-like situation again. So we shouldn't be talking to Putin. We shouldn't be talking to Xi Jinping." But if that, I think, would exacerbate the situation, I think we have to be able to to have two ideas or two thoughts in our heads at the same time. First, that that these countries are trying to undermine us, are trying to weaken us, to, or I should say these regimes are trying to weaken our countries uh, to uh, improve their own standing in the world. Um, but we also have to uh, treat them as, as co-equals on, on the global political stage where uh, we have to conduct dialogue, not to be nice, but because it benefits us to understand them and, and it benefits us if they understand us. And, and so it's, I think, a, a com- it has to be a completely pragmatic uh, consideration. If we don't understand their thinking, then we will make miscalculations about what they may be planning to do. And the same goes for them. And that could cause uh, absolutely catastrophic chains of events uh, that aren't, would be completely avoidable if we were to have that dialogue. And I think the best example of the person has managed to to hold two ideas in his head at the same time and conduct successful um, political strategies on the basis of it. That's uh, Helmut Schmidt of West Germany, as it was in the 70s when he was chancellor. And he uh, he was a strong advocate, as, as everybody on this call will know, of, of NATO's dual track strategy, which included putting American uh, nuclear weapons in West Germany. But he was also a strong advocate of, of West German business relations with the Soviet Union and the pipeline that was then planned between the Soviet Union and West Germany. You can say, well, these are two completely contradictory positions to take. I think it is possible. Helmut Schmidt, uh, who was, a, who was a, a very savvy politician, knew how to do it. It's obviously a, a, a bit more difficult than saying, well, we're not, we're not going to have any re- relations at all, or we're just going to trade. But it is possible. And, and I, I, I hope there are some new Helmut Schmidts out there who are able to conduct similarly ambitious foreign policy. So in your book, you talk about 2014 being a very special year for grace zone aggression. So what happened in 2014? Yeah, so that was Russia's annexation of, of Crimea. And I think it, it, it was 
uh, it was such a, a brutal wake-up call in lots of countries, and and yes, many yeah, many uh, regional well, many countries in the region had been warning of of something like that ever since Russia had its very brief conflict with Georgia, but it hadn't been taken seriously. It wasn't uh, completely un, unpredicted because it, it was clear that Russia wanted uh, the port of Sebastopol and would would go to great lengths to, to make sure it could keep access to it, which is what what it was uh, the annexation was about. But nevertheless, it was a, a, a brutal wake up call for, for most of us, and that's I think the the event that disabused most people of the notion that uh, we could keep engaging or treating Russia as just another country. And, and the country uh, on its path to becoming like us. And I think also, if I may add a point, it's it's a, a, a mistake we have made so many times over and over, since, especially since the end of the Cold War, to assume that that all countries want to become like us. And it's, it's rather charming that we in the West think that <laughs> we have figured it out and that everybody inevitably want, would want to become like us. I don't think there is an arrogance involved in most cases. It's just this, this rather sort of naive notion that, oh, we have figured it out and, and we'll help you become like us because it's good for you. But what if people don't become want to become like us? And I think that's that's what we're seeing with China now as well. Of course, Chinese uh, the, the Chinese public is not being asked. The Chinese government is telling the world what the, the public wants and who knows uh, to which extent that corresponds to what people really want. But nevertheless, China is not on a path to, to, to becoming uh, just like us. And that's what we have seen, I think, and especially in the past two years. So 2014, we had the annexation of Crimea and, of course, the the start of the war in East Ukraine. Um, we had uh, a Russian regime that deliberately uh, wanted to be sort of in that gray zone, right? Sort of between black and white. They they It wasn't, at least not in their view, sort of a, a traditional war, but it wasn't peace either, even if, of course, this was included a lot of disinformation which was there in order to, in their view, make it easier uh, in order to annex Crimea. What other things did they do at this point, sort of then sort of disinformation? Did they attack individual companies? Did they go for civil society organizations? And I suppose that's also formed part of the broader concept of gray zone aggressions, right? Yeah, so gray zone aggression really is, a, I, I think of it as, as a soup, and you can put whatever you have at your, uh, in, your, in your kitchen, you can put in that soup. And, and so you, you improvise the recipe every single time you use gray zone aggression. And, and in that, in the context of, of uh, uh, Ukraine or Crimea, then Eastern Ukraine, uh, Russia used obviously little green men, which unfortunately became the, the notion in people's minds of, of what gray zone aggression or in, in that case, uh, hybrid aggression is about. But uh, you, you don't have to use little green men every time. In fact, you, Russia hasn't used yet that particular strategy again, but you can use disinformation as well. You can also use uh, use uh, cyber aggression. And, and so that was the basic mix in, with regards to Ukraine. Then with other countries, uh, Russia has used a different mix. But uh, if we just look at, at so each of those components uh, has a, a considerable effect on the targeted country, but together they can be incredibly potent and, and cause that country to grind to a halt, the daily life in that country to grind to a halt, but also cause the, the local population to lose faith in its government. And I think that's an incredibly important aspect to bear in mind, because if if people lose faith in their government, then what's the point of even having armed forces? Um, we saw it in, at its most extreme in, in Afghanistan, which was not subjected to disinformation by Russia or, or other countries, but we saw the effect of people not having any faith in the government. Uh, the, the existing structures, most notably the armed forces, melted away just like that, even though on paper they, they were there to defend the country. So that was the mix in Ukraine. And, and a good example of, uh, and by the way, of course, it continues. It wasn't just in 2014, it continues. And in 2017, that was a fantastic example of what you can achieve in the gray zone. So there was a, a cyber attack that became known as NotPetya, which Russia unleashed against Ukraine to bring down government institutions. And, and so the government itself, hospitals, the airport, banks, and so forth. And that, um, they succeeded in doing that, and, and, and daily life ground to a halt. 
but then the, the virus traveled on and brought down Western companies, uh, multinationals, so Merck in America, Maersk, the, the Danish shipping company, and, and, and lots of other companies. And that's how the Western world or, or the, the Europe and, and North America and the global public started paying attention because Maersk for six days, for example, was, <laughs> was crippled, couldn't, couldn't say, well, what are, the, what are the consequences for all of us if the world's largest container shipping company can no longer uh, can no longer deliver its containers around the world that is a really serious state of affairs indeed i remember that examples um indeed and and would you say sort of what you laid out now is that also a good general description of the type of a, of of attacks that may come that they target sort of important infrastructure or they go for institutions like banks or logistics firms or hospitals healthcare systems is, is that sort of the type of the, the preferred target for an aggressor like this? Yes, what, what we have seen in, in recent uh, years, and especially recent months, is that uh, companies that play a, a vital role in, in making daily life work, that they have been targeted. And we saw, for example, uh, in the US in May with the ransomware attack on Colonial Pipeline. Now, it was conducted by a criminal gang in Russia, so, so, so not by the Russian government itself, but clearly condoned by the Russian government because it would have had the option to shut down this criminal gang, and it didn't. And Colonial Pipeline, I think, is such an important incident to watch and and learn from because, yes, it was a ransomware attack, and Colonial Pipeline, as a result, um, had to completely shut down its operations because part of the operations were affected by this ransomware, and, and, and so... It had to shut them down. But what then happened was that people heard, oh, Colonial Pipeline uh, has been targeted. Uh, there is, There will be gasoline shortage. I better buy some gasoline now. And everybody <laughs> went to the uh, uh, gas station to buy gasoline. And, and as a result, created a, a really extremely serious gasoline shortage, right? So there was the gasoline shortage caused by the, the attack itself. But then there was the the shortage, the much, much more severe shortage uh, caused by people's panicking as a result of the attack. And that, I think, illustrates how important it is to involve the public in preparing for grace and aggression, not uh, in the sense of, of always uh, drumming up fear because we want to live in, we enjoy our free and open societies and we don't want to always worry about what could happen, but just uh, to have people understand that things like this are possible and they will happen again and not to panic when they do happen. And then one other point about Colonial Pipeline, which I think is really important to bear in mind. So for, so for the past 30 years in particular, well, ever since the advent of, of computers and the internet, uh, workers, uh, companies have uh, become more digital, uh, their operations are computer-based, which is fantastic. And, and older workers have been phased out because they were trained in the old manual uh, systems and, and younger workers tried learning digital things. So they, they are seen as maybe better workers or at least more valuable workers. But we, when we see attacks like Colonial Pipeline, in the case of Colonial Pipeline, the CEO said, or told uh, the Senate when he was called in to talk about what had happened, he said, we just don't have enough older workers. The older workers who knew how to operate the system manually, they are either, either retired or dead. So <laughs> with such older workers, Colonial Pipeline would have been able to keep operations going at a bit higher. So they, they, they managed to, uh, to have minimal operations, but with older workers, they would have been able to supply more gasoline and averted this really serious crisis that resulted. Uh, Norsk Hydro did exactly that. They had some older workers who knew how to operate manually, and they managed to keep operations going when they were targeted. So I think this could lead, should lead to a sort of a renaissance of workers, but engineers, uh, anybody with expertise running systems manually, because it's part of our resilience, and they have been unfairly maligned for being somehow old-fashioned. Well, these are the skills we need again. Let's get back to that issue in in, in a while, because I think it's interesting. Uh, but let me first ask you, so you mentioned a couple of governments that are aggressors in this field, and then you also made reference to sort of criminal gangs that were operating. So 
What do we know about sort of the linkages between governments and different gangs that are operating? For instance, I mean, the example I gave you with the payment technology provider that had to cancel its operation this summer, I think sort of the general explanation that people were receiving was that, you know, this was someone who wanted to blackmail the company and get money for it. But when you heard the sums involved, you you struggle to think, you know, how can this be blackmail? Because, you know, it's it's the, the sums are so small. So there must be other objectives behind it than than just trying to sort of take money out of different firms. So, I mean, what w- what is the scene, the theater we have for them? Do we have sort of independent different operators that act in certain countries? Uh, are they sponsored by governments? Are they protected governments? What What is the relationship here? Yeah, so we have the whole plethora of arrangements. So in some cases, uh, the if we if we look at cyber in particular, the attackers, uh, the, the individuals who carry out the attacks are employees of various government agencies. And the U.S. government every now and then charges some, you know, a few individual cyber attackers. Of course, nothing will ever happen because they'll never enter America. But nevertheless, they are sometimes charged, and it's it's often officers in in various Chinese intelligence agencies. But then we have, uh, and I think this is the, the trickier area to address, uh, we have criminal gangs or or freelancers even who work on behalf of the government and it's uh, of, of a hostile government. And it's virtually impossible to link them, for, for us, to link them to the sponsoring government because it doesn't even, that doesn't even need to be a, a, a paper trail or I should say digital trail. It could just be a handshake. And how... Uh, how can we then uh, link the attacker once we have uh, identified the attacker? How can we link that attacker to to the sponsoring government? It's very difficult, and even if we manage to to do it, it takes a long time. And then if we if we are to respond, uh, and and we in the West we always want evidence at almost at a sort of a court of law standard that it's beyond reasonable doubt. Well, it takes a long time to establish uh, such uh, such certainty, and then it's too late to respond. So, so that is a second arrangement. But a third arrangement, which I think is, is one that will become increasingly uh, prominent and concerning, is where officers or, or officials in, in these various government agencies, people with the expertise, where they freelance just to make, make a quick uh, back as it were, they freelance their services to criminal gangs and um, not working on, on behalf of the government, just wanting to make extra cash for themselves. And that is already uh, leading prol- to proliferation of cyber weapons, just as, as you know, we were worried about in, in the 90s with nuclear weapons, that, that ex- experts in government agencies in charge of nuclear weapons in, in the former Soviet Union, that they would volunteer their services to various uh, criminal outfits. Um, that didn't really happen because it's it's also very difficult to transfer any nuclear materials, as people on, on this call will know. But with cyber, you, you don't even have to transport any material. It's just what's in your head. And, and I think this could lead to a very dangerous development where criminal gangs start operating with nation-state-style uh, expertise, thanks to such uh, moonlighting officers. All right, so let's let's go back to the issue you mentioned with um, technology and shifting patterns of labor in in the workforce. So I would imagine if you are sort of part of the leadership of a big multinational firms, you will be thinking about these issues. Perhaps they think too little about them, but at the same time they probably struggle to come up with an idea how they should measure different risks, measure different exposure what part of the business that they need to have some type of contingency planning for. And I suppose also, what is the consequence for further type of digitalization that you want to do in your own company? Going towards more cloud-based solutions, can you share in, in sort of in the cloud in terms of your trade secrets? How do you communicate internally, et cetera? So what, if we start, so what is your impression of where many of these companies are right now? I mean, are they increasingly alert to the problem and are they also beginning to act as a consequence of it or still seeing sort of too much naivety in the private sector? Well, I'm really glad you asked this question because it is a fundamental question and one that a lot of CEOs are struggling with at the moment. 
so that they are seeing, and not just in the news, but in their own companies, that the, the very low margin strategy that uh, companies have had for, for years now and have been required to have, if, if, you, don't, if you don't put uh, in such a performance as a CEO, you are, uh, you are fired at the next uh, annual uh, meeting or, or even sooner. But... That works really well when the potential disruptions are small and when they're essentially just a, a result of the hustle and bustle of the globalized economy, but not, not used as a, as, a, as a tool of aggression by anybody. But what do you do when all of a sudden a company's very high level of sophistication, uh, digital sophistication, very high level of internationalization, when that is all of a sudden a vulnerability? And that's what they are seeing both with regards to, to their digitally-based systems, but also with regards to their global supply chains. And also, uh, and another fact that I think is really important is the speed at which they have to deliver, I'm talking about manufacturing companies here in particular, and deliver their goods to the, the client, the, the, the buyer, the consumer. And, and so all of this, it is, is it, the margins are tiny, uh, the cost margins, the timing margins, they are tiny. And so if you're a CEO today, you will think, well, how can I move from, from this just-in-time uh, to, to just-in-case uh, uh, strategy? And, 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 and I should say with just-in-time, it can be also can refer to, to other areas as well, not just time, but this tiny margin, minimal margin uh, strategy to a more risk-based uh, strategy or risk-aware strategy. And so that involves, for example, with, with manufacturing companies that may involve going from uh, single-source suppliers to having a backup source, where that involves money. And uh, with, uh, with digital systems, you may, for example, want to bring in somewhat older experts who know how to operate systems manually, but that will, of course, bring them in so that they could help you they could help the company they could take over operations if there were to be a ransomware attack because the alternative is that you go down for several days and that would cost money but the the challenge they have is that no board and no shareholders will reward such prudence at the moment and and i think though that the the, the tide is turning because the global public is becoming aware of just how vulnerable companies are and the way i look at it is that companies can actually uh, make such prudence turn it into a competitive advantage by highlighting what they are doing and putting it in in, in the annual report. And yes, it, it will cost uh, it will cost additional money. But if it's something that you can you can highlight and and show that that you are ahead of the game, you're ahead of the, your competitors because you are preparing for what is inevitably coming your way and and everybody else's way too. Then you can make that into competitive advantage. We have seen it, for example, Mask has turned cybersecurity into a, a major point of a major selling point really they they have they have talked openly about what happened to them but they are talking equally openly about how they are protecting themselves and as a result they are looking very prudent and i saw just this morning they've turned in record profits this year again so they clearly haven't been hurt too badly by the not petya incident so i think that is the way to to essentially turn lemons into lemonade. I may be too optimistic that it will happen in the short term, but certainly in the long run. Then another example, um, the Czech Republic, not uh, traditionally a, a country that is on the forefront of, of societal resilience, they happen to have a very forward-thinking defense department at the moment, and, and the deputy minister of defense has set up a, a fantastic gray zone exercises involving the armed forces and the country's leading companies. So they exercise on a regular basis and sector-based and more cross-sector, they exercise gray zone scenarios and how obviously as a result are better prepared for gray zone aggression should it happen. And that's something that you can also sell or highlight to, to your shareholders, to your board, to uh, existing customers and to prospective customers and investors. Very good. So let us talk about what more we can do. I mean, I think we're already moving into that conversation now since you mentioned sort of strategies that you can do at the corporate level. You mentioned the Czech Republic case as well, where governments get in in order to uh, improve resilience and, and make um, different actors more prepared. But if we sort of address the issue a bit more generally, and we think about sort of different type of issues that we've covered in this conversation, different types of gray zone aggression. So what is it that we can do in this case, 
if we start from a government point of view, what can the Western democracies do? What can, for instance, the EU do? In, in your book, you cover different types of um, measures or different type of approaches uh, that goes from preparedness to also to include issues around punishment. So, so let's start there. If you, if you would lay out your action program for defending against gray zone aggression, what would it include? Well, first of all, it would include uh, involving the public. So today, the public uh, in most countries, in most Western countries, is, uh, isn't asked to do anything. We're just asked to, to go about our lives and, and be merry and pay taxes. But I think there is potential uh, to, not just potential, there, there is the urgent need to, to ask people to, to do a bit more, namely do something to help keep the country safe. And if any, for anybody who has followed the news in, in the most, well, in, in the past uh, couple of years, it's obvious what's happening. And so I think it's people would, people realize that life as they know it is incredibly convenient, but it's also vulnerable to disruption. So it's in their interest, I think, help make any disruption as, as limited as possible, which I think makes it being involved in keeping countries, uh, keeping one's country safe against grace on aggression is much easier sell than asking somebody to be involved in in keeping uh, their country safe from a military incursion, because that seems like such a, a distant prospect and an and un, unlikely prospect, whereas grace and aggression is already happening and, and will uh, can and will affect everybody. So I think, for example, that the leaflet that the Swedish government or Swedish Civil Contingencies Agency put out three years ago, inspired by a Cold War leaflet, but uh, there are also similar leaflets in, in earthquake zones. That leaflet was really fantastic and, and something that other countries can learn from uh, a very straightforward little publication that said uh, well, that was called if, if crisis or war comes and told people this is how you know that a crisis is afoot and and this is how you identify whether this is how you know whether the information is coming from the government if it's not coming from the government you can uh, well you should only follow information coming from the government in the case of a crisis and here's how to prepare for a crisis whether it be an extreme weather event or uh, aggression in the gray zone here's what to do while it's happening and and here's to, here's how you know that it's over and things like that very straightforward points and and what people are asked to do is not very much it's just looking after themselves and their families so that the government in a crisis doesn't also have to to hold every single citizen's hand and make sure that that they are that they don't get into trouble on top of uh, the government having to deal with the crisis itself. Then the next step is to invite citizens to be involved on a more active basis, uh, not just sort of knowing what to do in a, in a crisis and, 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 and to not, for example, uh, panic by fuel. But the next step is to have them more actively involved. And the UK government, another government that hasn't uh, doesn't have a, a track record or, or a long history of, of uh, whole of society approaches to national security. The UK government is now working on something it calls a civilian reserve, where it would, uh, well, the civilian reserve would would mirror the, the military reserve, but involve civilian experts whom the government could use in a crisis. It's a fantastic concept because people want to help. But today, when a crisis occurs, it may not be obvious that it's occurring. And, and uh, as we have discussed, until it's too late. And then well, then there is not very much you can do about it. But with this sort of reserve, for example, the government would be able to, to ask people with established expertise to come and help when it sees a crisis unfolding. So all that I'd say is sort of it's basically contingency planning, right? So being as a society more prepared. Do we need to have a, another defense line as well? I mean, I suppose if we improve our defensive capabilities, we would perhaps be better at um, weathering problems when they arise. But do we also need to take more specific actions? Yeah. So if you think of gray zone aggression, uh, you can think of it as a schoolyard bullying. So most most kids, when there's a schoolyard bully, they, they try to hide somewhere so he won't hit them. That's a workable strategy up to a point because it's it, it's a very defensive strategy, but you also need to be able well, to solve the situation to make it stop. You also have to be able to hit back, or to you have to be able to signal that you'll hit back, and 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 hopefully, if he realizes that there is somebody who will hit back and it will hurt him, he he won't even engage in, in bullying in the first place. And that's 
what, what we call deterrence by punishment, right? You deter the aggression by signaling that the aggressor will be punished. And that's where we need uh, to, to figure out uh, as, as the West collectively, not, not as individual countries, we need to work together to, to identify what, what we can collectively signal that we will do if grace on aggression continues. And one area that I put in the book that I, I think is, is really important is that one strength that we have is uh, the attractiveness of our societies and the fact that many members of the elite in the countries of which are still primarily Russia and China, they, their spouses, their children, uh, they, they live here in our countries uh, or own property in our countries. They have bank, account in our, bank accounts in our countries. And that's something that it, it depends on our generosity. Uh, we don't have to be that generous. Or we can tell them that if uh, they continue with their harmful activities, that will no longer be available to them. And, and not as a sort of a general threat, because then they won't pay attention, but we can sig- we can communicate that if gray zone aggression were to continue in whichever area they engage in, that uh, certain individuals will lose their visas, meaning they won't be able to live in our countries anymore. If you're a member of the Russian or Chinese elite, one of these uh, wealthy kids who live in, in London or New York or, or another major city, thanks to... Uh, who your father is, then actually that is a, a quite substantial threat. Well, your life, uh, your convenient lifestyle is based on being able to live in the West. And so I, I think that such a threat too would, would target the elite without harming the general population, which is unfortunately often the victim when we impose traditional sanctions. That such sanctions rarely harm the elite and disproportionately harm ordinary citizens. Then another form of punishment we could could use um, is to make the information about these arrangements, about property ownership, about bank uh, accounts, about financial transactions, we could threaten to make that public and uh, we wouldn't need to say whose information we have. And by the way, this is this is not secret information. It's, it's publicly available if you know where to look. Uh, but people in these countries are not uh, necessarily aware of, of their leaders' bank accounts in our countries and where they keep their money. That's something that we can communicate. It it is an absolutely uh, hypocritical stance for these leaders to try to to harm our countries while enjoying the benefits of having access to them. So I realize that obviously this is not as powerful as uh, threatening a a nuclear strike in retaliation against an army invasion of another country. But nevertheless, it's more than we are doing at the moment. And the, the, the point is, I think, to to target uh, individuals, because if you, if you issue a, a blanket threat, then it, it, nobody feels that it applies to them, whereas these individuals are powerful. And if they were to personally suffer or be told they would personally suffer, they would think twice. You, you mentioned uh, towards the end of your book um, this case with uh, Huawei in Sweden, where it wanted to become part of the 5G rollout. And there was a decision by a local authority in Sweden, which denied access to Huawei because of security concerns. This case hasn't ran its course yet in in the court system. So I, I think there is going to be, there is an appeal process going on for the moment. But I think the, the case itself is pretty interesting, as, as you say in the book, partly because naturally there were retaliations coming uh, in the sense that if if Huawei uh, will not be able to be part of uh, a European country's 5G deployment, then other com- other companies from Europe or companies from Europe may not be receiving particular market access in China either. So it's always that sort of um, threat which is hanging over governments that want to, to to take these decisions. This is also part of a longer story in Europe where. We agreed in Brussels a couple of years ago about sort of investment screening from a security policy point of view. Uh, it didn't go very far. But do you think this is something we need to have more of as perhaps part of a preparedness type of approach in the sense that we don't want to get into problematic situations from the start? So we sort of, in order to avoid problems later on, we, we, we try to avoid them right now. America, for instance, using investment screening much more thoroughly than it's being done in, in, in Europe. What, what do you think? Do you think this is a type of mechanism, type of instrument we need to have more of? I think so. And, and it has been interesting to see over the past 
couple of years. So with regards to investment screening in particular, it just wasn't something that European countries did. The US had CFIUS, which you mentioned, and they investigated a larger share of proposed takeovers than, than was the case in Europe. Because in Europe, it was almost nothing because we believed Europeans believed in in the globalized economy, and we saw most acquisitions. So defense uh, companies were more closely scrutinized, but for virtually every other company, there was almost no scrutiny of acquisitions. So as a result, we lost uh, companies with key expertise, and it has been fascinating to see in these past couple of years that uh, lots of European countries have passed some sort of either government regulation or uh, parliamentary decision on enhanced or something less than rudimentary uh, investment screening. So there has been this this awakening and and there is more screening now. I I think one challenge is that the screening doesn't go very far. So it looks at the acquiring entity, but the acquiring entity can be a a European company and you you have to look at the ownership chain uh, because if you just look at at the the buying company, anybody can set up a a company in Europe or or form a joint venture with with a company in Europe and it looks like it's a European company acquiring another European company. But as we saw with... uh, in the case of Alpi Aviation in Italy a couple of years ago, it was a the buying entity, it was a company based in Hong Kong, looked completely vanilla, fine. And then if you looked through the, the ownership layers, which the Italian police subsequently did, uh, th- there were, uh, this company had built seven layers of intermediate uh, ownership structure and was ultimately owned by, by a Chinese state fund. So now that company is lost, that really sensitive company is lost to Italy, that the, the drone company, and uh, is owned by by the by the Chinese government. So uh, it's it's really uh, imperative, I think, to look at the, the whole own, ownership chain. Then, with regards to your first point of our companies being punished by by China in particular, if our governments dare to voice an opinion that this pleases the Chinese government, this is a, a real concern because our companies are so dependent on, on the Chinese market, both for their supply chains, uh, but especially for sales and if any decision made by their home governments can make them uh, a potential target for retaliation by China, it's it's absolutely untenable. If I were a CEO of a company with with either uh, part of my supply chain in China or a major sales in China, which is virtually every company, every Western company, I would be really concerned because the Chinese government government can choose to retaliate against any Western company. That's sort of part of the power of gray zone aggression, that it's so hard to discern who is going to be targeted. And as a result, China, in this case, can instill general fear among, uh, among in this case, uh, the, the Western uh, private sectors. Another policy development that is going on in Brussels right now is that we are discussing something called an anti-coercion mechanism, which would be I think something brand new. It wouldn't be sort of a copy and paste from for some policies that already exist in other countries. But it is it is an instrument which, of course, is has the intention of trying to deter other governments from using coercion in order to achieve certain type of outcomes. And quite often, in this case, at least when we're talking about this instrument, it will be outcomes in the economic field. So you have governments that may threaten to do pretty aggressive things in return for something benign that another country do, or if there is a a rejection on a mergers and acquisition proposal, for instance, they're going to retaliate with something else. Now, this, of course, is interesting, but also pretty problematic, because it's very difficult to find a, a good common definition what constitutes a coercion. When we have regular negotiations between governments, one government is going to say, well, I'm going to do this. Well, if you do that, I'm going to do this, another country says, just in order to help them to understand the reaction function of each other. And that's information sharing. But there's a degree of coercion in it as well, in the sense that you do it in order to convey to another party that, you know, whatever they do is not going to be cost-free. There will be consequences arising as of it. So... I think my question here would be sort of, do you think it's generally advisable for governments to find specific instruments that are more targeted against incidents of coercion? And if that's the case, how could we how could we make an instrument like that workable in the sense that we want to address issues that are really malign and where there are obvious cases of 
of foreign governments trying to pressure unduly and with instruments that are simply not acceptable another country yes it is really tricky and how do you put down on paper what exactly constitutes coercion and what exactly your tools are for, for how to counter it? I, I don't know the answer. And, and I guess all other forms of gray zone aggression, it's, this is to, again, the aggressor's advantage or the, the I should say the offending party's advantage that it's, again, like geopolitical gaslighting. The, the other the, the offending country can say, well, you're just imagining that we are coercing because we are just behaving the way uh, a country ordinarily would. And, and, and you may say, well, yeah, I guess like uh, U.S. country A may say, well, maybe we are overreacting. And but this comes down, I think, to the deterioration of trust in the relationship and the dealings between government today. I mean, it's, it's never completely trust. And, and uh, there is a, never uh, since Westphalia has there been complete trust between nation states. But nevertheless, I think that the challenge that we have now is that China, Russia, Belarus, uh, North Korea, Iran, uh, and, and, and I think uh, other countries may join them, they don't care if they are seen uh, as if, if the global public knows they are negotiating in bad faith. And, and, and that is a huge challenge. That's not to say that we in the West are perfect, but uh, and, and, and the US has certainly over the years uh, used uh, coercion and undue pressure on other countries. So uh, and it's something that, that is nothing to be proud of. But nevertheless, uh, the, the challenge that, that we have now is that uh, we can't even count on these countries to, to take pride in being seen as, as upstanding members of the of the global community, which the Soviets, for all their faults, they wanted to be seen as, as a trustworthy and, and respectable pillar of the international community. What do you do if, if you can't appeal to that? And that's where we are today. All right, Elizabeth, thank you very much. It's thank been a great you. pleasure talking to you. We are sort of running out of time now. We've already passed the time where we're going to end. I have lots of more questions I wanted to ask. Uh, also, lots of more questions from different people that have been watching us and uh, sent me questions. But that's that's the uh, receipt for a good event, in the sense we didn't have time to cover all the things that we wanted to ask you. But it, it, this has been sort of extraordinarily enlightening. I think I speak for a lot of people when I say that it is a bit of a new area for many, even if some of us are old enough to sort of have lived through the Cold War, at least part of it, and know sort of the concept of contingency planning and preparedness. We've also been almost lulled into a psychology of complacency over the past 25 years when we just have thought that major conflicts, major problems want to rise. And, and of course, in, in the past years, we've been confronted with many, many different types of new crises that have put a lot of pressure on, on governments, on the private sector and civil society. So it's obviously something we have to become more accustomed to in the future and be, become better at planning for. So thank you so much for taking the time. Let me also say to uh, everyone that... Elizabeth's book is freely available on the website of the American Enterprise Institute, so do go, do go there. It is certainly worth a read. Um, you will be enlightened and I wouldn't say scared, but at least you will be more informed about the realities going around you that you perhaps aren't haven't heard about before. So thank you so much, Elizabeth.